Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington, and you can find our plan there. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in today for the first time, we are on day 64. The big 6-4, here we are. Uh, and as along the way, if you have questions that you would like to send us in, we would love to spend time to answer them. Uh, and you can send us those questions three ways. One of three ways, I guess you can send us all three, but one of three ways works too. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Uh, or the other two ways are via social media. You can find us on Facebook. As mentioned, Evan mentioned, we are the Grove Church in Washington State. Or on Instagram, our handle is the Grove CH. You can DM us there as well. And as you can tell, my voice is a little bit better little than bit. it was last last week. So thank you for staying with us. Uh, apparently, I got diagnosed with laryngitis. And it's I'm on a steroid right now, so I'm getting really ripped. And my voice is coming back. So it's the best of both worlds, I think. So. Aaron is crushing home runs for the Grove Church softball team right now. So yeah, way, like that. way too good. Let's just hope they don't drug test soon. All right, so let's talk about, we're finishing up numbers today, and listeners, you'll be delighted to know that we're not, you know, we're not fudging this at all. Like, it actually ends right when the day says we're finishing up numbers. Well, let's be honest. I think you're more delighted about that than any listeners. No, I think the listeners Um, stay up at night wondering if Why do they give us an extra chapter to to listen to? Why are they lying about the reading plan? We're not lying. (laughs) Not this week. Not this week, listeners. Wait, what? All right, so picking up where we left off last week, the people of Israel travel to Kadesh, which is just south of Canaan, so it's on that southern border. Uh, We're told in passing that Miriam dies and is buried there. Yeah, it's just a quick blurb. Yeah, it's kind of like anything significant. I feel, yeah, I feel kind of bad. I feel bad laughing about that, actually, but yeah, I mean, she's because she's a big deal. She's the one who saved Moses' life. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that she does. And unfortunately, I guess one of the last things that she does is stand up against Moses and you have that whole episode with leprosy. But I also think she repented of that as well. But yeah, we're just kind of, it's kind of given a footnote. It just kind of happens and then we move on. Um, also, this is just completely random, but I found out that from the ESV study Bible notes that the name Miriam and Mary are the same. So, cause I always knew like the, the names in the New Testament are not the same as the names in the Old Testament. Correct. Like, if you're wondering, where did all of these <laughs> names come from? Well, it's like Simon is actually Simeon. Jacob, I be- or um, James, I believe, is Jacob. Like there's a bunch of translators. Jesus is Joshua. Um, Yeshua. Or Yeshua, yeah. So there's there's a bunch of kind of weird things like that that happen. So there you go. Yeah, it's just names change. Yep. All right. Well, after this, we get the people of Israel complaining about what? The, the, yeah, what? They're complaining uh, this time about the lack of water. So God commands Moses to speak to a rock, and water will flow out of it. So He says, "Hey Moses, go speak here. The rock, the water, the rocks. You know, it's going to flow with water, and the people can drink." Uh, so this goes down. This is in Numbers chapter twenty, verses ten through thirteen. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, love that. Uh, Shall we bring water out of this rock, water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me, as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. There are waters of the, these are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and though, and through them, he showed himself holy. So you might be thinking like, wait, hold on, what? So God says, speak to this rock, water's going to come out. 
Moses does his thing. He taps the rock twice with his staff. Water comes out. And then God says, okay, you know what? For that, you don't get to bring the people of Israel into the promised land anymore. Which Don't skip over that. Yeah, this is significant. That is massive. Well, I said I said last week, this is probably one of the, like, I, I think I, I used the phrase, my, one of my favorite chapters. I don't think it's one of my favorite chapters, but it is one of the chapters that is the most profound to me because we don't have a bunch of context as to what led from the moment God told Moses and Aaron what to do to the moment of Moses and Aaron standing before the people. We don't have the the context of what's happened in that moment. And so a lot of it has been left to speculation, but I do think for me, as I read it, you know, and, and you can, you can get some implications from Moses's life is he, he, he had an anger issue. Um, he, he grew hot tempered very quickly. Um, he, he's just as much as the people are complaining, he's just as hungry, just as thirsty, just as worn out as the people, if not more so because he's shouldering the weight of leading the people. Um, so there is a short tempered fuse at some point. So we don't have a lot of clarity on why it played out the way it did. Um, but all we know is that Moses did not do exactly what God told him to do. And that's what caused to him no longer having, um, the, the position of being able to lead God in these God's people into the promised land. Um, and it's a significant turning point for Moses specifically um, in in his leadership for the people. Well, I think I, th- I think of two things with this. Number one, like you said, Moses did not do exactly what God commanded him to do. And remember, that's what Nahab, uh, Nadab and Abihu, is that the Aaron's sons who died in, yep. Yeah, yep. In, in Leviticus? That's what they died for. They died for not specifically doing exactly what God commanded. The other thing that I think could be going on here as well is in in the book of Judges, I remember last year I I remarked a bunch that God sets things up so that there is no question as to who accomplished this miracle. So like Gideon is a great example. Like the the 300 Israelites fighting against the army of the Midianites, that's not Leonidas and his Spartan. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, Like it's clearly like the way it's orchestrated is... They just kind of blow some trumpets and then the the Midianites all start killing themselves and running away. Like that, it's clearly set up so that they know the Lord did this. Yahweh did this. This is not accomplished by man. Um, I think the two things that stand out to me is one, Moses strikes the rock instead of talking to it, which is kind of him showing himself doing something and not completely letting God do it. And the other thing, I don't don't think it's a coincidence that says, here now you rebel, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And is he he referring to... Himself, yeah. Well, and I I guess... And Aaron, but... That's true. I guess no matter what, he's referring to himself, right? So he's not saying, here now you rebels, shall Yahweh bring water out of this rock for you? He says we, and whether he's referring to himself and God, which is kind of its own problem, um, or is he referring to himself and Aaron? But I think there is... Yeah, I think there's some pride there as well. And again, this is kind of conjecture because we're, sure. n- we're not told straight up, here's exactly why. Um, it, w- what we're told is because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. And so that's a little bit up for interpretation there. But re- regardless. Yeah, but I, and I think that's a really interesting point too, which I, I don't know if I've ever read or picked up on that. Um, but when he strikes a rock, it's what he's seen happen before. The way that rock, the water came out of the rock the last time, he struck the rock. Right. And... I don't remember, and, and forgive me, I'm, I'm sure you or you might or someone, one of our listeners will remember uh, off the top of my head, but I don't remember if he struck the rock, rock twice in the first time or whatever, but I, all we know is that he struck the rock. Um, and so there could very well be this, I mean, how many times did Moses complain about these people? Why did you, why did you give me these people? Did I birth them? Did I do this? Like that was his most recent complaint. And so he's, he's, he's not equating himself to the same standard of God, but there is this prideful issue um, that creeps and shows up. And I think that we statements are pretty significant one too, but anyways, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's like I said, it's definitely a very 
big turning point in Moses's leadership tenure of of God's people. Yeah, this is, it's almost the turning point as far as the ministry of Moses goes, because now he is no longer leading his people towards something that they will accomplish. He's yeah. now preparing the next generation, which we'll meet here in a little yeah. bit, um, but he's preparing the next generation of Israelites yeah. to go. And the last thing I'll say is this, notice that God still provided water. I think that's significant too, because yeah, even, even though Moses rebelled, even though Moses disobeyed, even though Moses made it about him, however we want to frame it, God still provided for his people. And, and I think it's really important um, to understand, and you've already hit on when it comes to the judges' cycles from last year, and God is very, very much in the picture and in the business of making sure he is glorified. And, and we can, in modern day, translate it to modern day times for a second, we can see supernatural, miraculous, powerful things happening by bad leaders. And we automatically attribute, if we're not careful, that because God is showing up in powerful ways, that bad leaders must be anointed leaders. And, and I think we've got to be very careful. We've got to use our discernment and be obedient to what the Holy Spirit is saying, but at the same time, not throw the baby out with the bathwater because God is the one who's supernatural. God is the one who's all powerful. Uh, and so God still provided water for his people, all of the people and the livestock. He didn't just provide like a drop. He provided water for the people, which is significant mm-hmm. too. But anyways. No, absolutely. Um, so after this, we have Moses sending messengers asking to pass through Edom, uh, which is on the way to Canaan. And then they say, hey, we're not going to pass through like your vineyards or fields or anything. We're going to stick to the highway. Um, and if we need anything for supplies, we will pay you for it. Like we're not going to be looting or anything like that. Um, and he brings up their shared history. Remember Edom, these are the descendants of Esau. So Jacob and yep. Esau are brothers. The descend- Jacob's his name is changed to Israel and that's the nation of Israel. Uh, and then Esau's family, they move over. I forgot what people group was living there, but they basically kind of took it over and they, they created the kingdom of Edom. Yeah, is where they're at. Um, so all this time that Israel has been in Egypt, Edom's been, they've been chilling. They've been here. Uh, and Edom chilling like a villain. Yep. Yeah, they should be a brother, sister to Israel. Um, but instead they refuse to allow them to pass for pass through. Uh, they even go so far as bringing an army to the border. So as the Israelites yep. go, the army of Edom is there waiting, basically saying, if you cross, we're going to war over this. So Israel goes around. Um, but you know, that kind of, it unfortunately sets the tone for the relationship between the nations of Israel and Edom, which yeah. will unfortunately not follow the same as the brothers of Israel. Israel and Esau, yeah. where we see them reconciled. Which is sad. Yeah. It, it, and we it, talked it, about that with Jacob and Esau, but... And we'll get into, I think it's Obadiah, when we get into that particular prophetic book about how, just how far it devolves. And it, it's a real bummer. It's true. Um, after this, we see another major death. So this is in Numbers chapter 20, verses 22 to 29. And they journeyed from Kadesh and the people of Israel, the whole congregation to, came to Mount Hor. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor on the border of the land of Edom, let Aaron be gathered to his people for he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Mer- Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar, his son, and bring them up to Mount Hor. Then strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar, his son, and Aaron shall be gathered to his people and shall die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. And they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and he put them on Eleazar, his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And when the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron for 30 days. So there you go. Uh, we see, it's kind of interesting because we'll see this come up again and we'll talk about that when it comes up. But God, with particularly with Moses and Aaron, 
and I, sh- I shouldn't say particularly because God always chooses when we're going to die, right? Like that's kind of like he's God. He can do that. Uh, but it's very, it's very interesting that he reveals beforehand, this is when you're going to die. Um, and he also goes out of his way to make sure that a successor is appointed. So Aaron's son, Eleazar, is going to be the new high priest. And before Aaron's death, um, it's important that Eleazar is chosen as the heir is the wrong word, but as the, as the successor to his father. Mm-hmm. And again, we're going to see this paralleled in a story coming up here in a little bit. Um, but yeah, and then Aaron Aaron dies. So that's two of the siblings of Moses. Two of the three siblings have now died. Uh, only Moses is left. And we can kind of assume that at this point, a lot of the former, uh, I shouldn't say that because there, <laughs> there's... You know, a lot of the former Israelites are probably dead at this point, but not not all of them. No, I, sure. I, I would, it's true though. I would say it's actually true um, that a lot of the the generation has passed has has died off, and that was God's intent. Um, unfortunately, to to let them die off, Caleb and Joshua are, are some of the only holdovers from that generation. Yep. So. And that's and as we come to the close of the book, but yeah, it's crazy. So uh, next, we see the king of Arad attack the camp and take some prisoners. Um, the people, I like this. The people instinctively and correctly call on Yahweh for Yay. help. So they're like, "Hey, God, please deliver us. Um, if we do this, we'll commit all the cities to destruction." Um, and they do. So God gives them. He basically they like, "Hey, if you deliver us, we're going to burn all these cities to the ground," and that's exactly what goes down. Um, and I put, don't worry though, if you thought the Israelites had learned their lesson, this is patently untrue. As they begin their march around Edom, they speak out against both Yahweh and Moses, and God sends venomous snakes into the camp to bite people. Oh, man. Oh, come on, Israelites. When the people uh, repent and cry out for help, uh, God commands Moses to make a bronze. I, I thought this was interesting, or actually it's probably copper. So the hmm. in Hebrew, it's the same word for both. Yeah. Uh, but it talks about the red hue of it, which is more of a copper look than a bronze look. So Interesting. It was, so it was actually probably a copper snake. Who knew? Ooh. Uh, but he creates a copper snake uh, that the people can look upon and they can be healed of their, uh, of their venomous bites of the poison. Um, and it, if you've ever wondered at hospitals, why there's snakes, that's why. <laughs> so if you've, if you've ever seen the logo of a hospital and been like, why is there a, like a, yep. a gold or a copper snake on there? That's why. Uh, and I, okay. I never caught this. This was in the study notes, but the people worship it later. So in, we'll get this when we get to second Kings, but when Hezekiah takes back oh, that's over, right. he specifically destroys this exact snake. Yep. So it had yep. been, it had been taken and because obviously like you hold on to this this is like a great reminder of god's faithfulness but the people began to worship it as its own god and so hezekiah has to destroy it so really interesting there um after this we get a sort of travel montage that ends in the land of the amorites uh they ask king sahon if they can pass through and in response he sends his armies to war uh war against the israelites so not even like you know putting them at the border he's just straight up attacks the camp uh he is soundly defeated and the, and the Israel just takes over the country. They're like, okay, cool. Say, thanks. Thanks for the land, man. Uh, and this becomes the land of both the tribes of Reuben and Gad. So now the- Spoiler. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm spoiling that they're going to settle there eventually. So we, we're starting to get, this is the first land that the Israelites are actually taking. Like, yeah. okay, this is our land now. It's on the east side of the Jordan River, not on the west side. So I, obviously if I just said that, but, and we'll talk about crossing the Jordan when we get into Joshua. But I think sometimes we think of- We'll talk about it even this and numbers too. Oh, that's true. Uh, I think sometimes we think about the the promised land did not, or the tribes of Israel did not begin getting their lands until the book of Joshua starts. No, it starts a little bit earlier. So yeah. not all of them. And in fact, not even the majority Well, but of them. even then, like their land is not given to them until the- 
the people are expelled. True. Like they set up, and again, we'll get to this, but they set up logistics and all those things ahead of time. Like God already helps Moses plan this out and communicate it out. But um, yeah, their land is given to them uh, as they as they complete the conquest is when their land is finally given to them as an inheritance. And we'll see why in, in, in Numbers chapter 31 here in a minute. Okay, you might not have noticed the gap there, listeners. Aaron was trying to cover for me because I was I, I was drinking water. It went down the wrong pipe. I was hacking up a lung. So you probably heard that. I shouldn't say probably. You in the back in the background of it. You definitely heard that. In the I tried to cover, but my voice isn't as strong right now. We're not as we're not as professional as we we, we make out. As to you be. may think we are. All right. Well, after after uh, they get this land. Uh, they meet King Og of Basham, who has the same idea as King Shahani. He's like, hey, that worked out for that guy. Why don't I try the same thing? And it goes exactly the same way. But I'm not that guy. I'll be better. Yeah, I'll be better. That, I'll that be, was a thought. No, I'm just oh kidding. Oh, my gosh. So parts of Basham become East Manasseh. So there you go. Not the whole thing. If you look at the map, there's kind of some northern territories that... Yeah, the half-tribe of, yep. of Manasseh. Yeah, the East, East Manasseh as... They prefer, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, after this, we meet a fun guy named Balaam. So Balaam's going to be, he's going to be a character that we come back to a a little bit. Uh, So Balak, the king of Moab, is understandably a little bit nervous about the Israelites chilling by his land. So he's like, hey, man, these (laughs) these kings that I'm aware of have just been overthrown by this nomadic tribe that's running through. That's kind of a bummer. Uh, So he he asks a local pagan prophet named Balaam to come and curse God's people. Uh, So God appears to Balaam and tells him not to go, which he obeys. So, you know, points for Balaam here, I suppose. Uh, Balak then asks a second time with what we can infer was a little bit of a higher price. He's like, hey. It was a substantially higher price. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, Balaam agrees to go after God gives him the okay. And I, I thought it was really interesting. Balaam here even uses the name Yahweh Elohim. So it's not like, because you'll see sometimes the the hint Mm-hmm. That someone is not doesn't have a personal relationship with God is they don't use the name Yahweh but they use the yeah. title. And the, Elohim. this to me is the conundrum of Balaam, and I've I've always I've always wrestled with this. Is you have someone like Balaam who is obviously in it for profit, a profit for profit. Um, see what you did there. Two different versions of the word, um, but they sound the same. But he knew who he was talking to. He used the word Elohim. He he understood that this is not just a God, it's the God that, and so he's conversing with. Um, and so he knew. And so that's where I think it's, it's really hard to like wrap my head around this whole encounter. It's a phenomenal story. Um, and God showing up about a donkey protecting Balaam's life. Um, and Balaam ends up dying later on anyways, but spoilers, um, Jeez. it's crazy to me. Like this is the tension I, I wrestle with the laws when it comes to Balaam is he's not some, He's not some random prophet. Like he's one that had conversations with God. He knows. And, and yet here he is doing his own thing. Like, I don't, it's just, it's just mind blowing to me to even consider that. Yeah. It's, it's pretty crazy. And it it depends on where you land on it, but is, yeah, is he an actual prophet of Yahweh that falls or is he just a prophet who knows who Yahweh is Mm -hmm. and therefore it's, it's, and that's almost, I shouldn't say it's almost worse. They're both really bad alternatives. Yeah. But that one's a scary thought too, where it's like he, he knows, he knows that, like you said, Yahweh is the one true God. But he's in it for the money. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, so God is angry with Balaam for going. Um, and I put, I, I would guess, because this is also kind of confusing, because God says, yeah, go for it. And then God's mad that he goes. So I mm-hmm. think God kind of, I shouldn't say I think, God knows Balaam's true motivations. For sure. I would think that Balaam is very motivated by the money. Yeah, absolutely. Because the so the price jumps in, in and, and not just the price, when, when uh, 
uh, shoot, I forget the king's name. When the king of Moab, when Balak, Balak sent his his first, it was it was low level influencers within his kingdom. When they came back and reported, he sent higher level influence and higher uh, reward, in essence, a higher price, a higher uh, uh, cost or higher value to do this. And so, um, so when Balaam's like wrestling with this, I told you already, I can't go. I, and he even says this, if King Balak would have given me his entire palace filled with riches, I still cannot go and speak what God tells me not to or tell, speak against what God tells me to speak. And, and he still goes back to God and asks. And so this is where you see the motivations like, man, that's, that's a big purse, Lord. Like, can I, can I still go? I know you said no, but yeah. if you were to change your mind, I'm not going to complain about it. So um, I think that's some of the thing too, is like God's angry. It, it, this is bad. And, and I don't mean this to, anyway, but there's, I remember the old, the old like jokes that go around as husbands and wives, like you, you say something, but you don't mean it. So when you're given the permission to go do something and you, you do it, then your spouse is mad at you because they actually didn't want you to do it. Like, that's what this feels like to me with God and, and Balaam is like, I told you fine, but that fine meant don't go. It's like, is it actually fine or is it fake? Ex fine? It, right, exactly. Uh, so it, it's just kind of this funny moment, but God, God's angry because of the motivations with which Balaam wants to pursue. This is a big deal. Mm -hmm. So God sends an angel to kill Balaam. However, his donkey sees the angel and keeps stopping and he keeps even like ba basically bashing his foot up against the wall. Uh, Balaam keeps beating the donkey, telling him to what? go or telling her to go. It's a female donkey. And then finally this goes down, which is one of the, th it's, it's one of the more famous stories from the Bible, just because it's kind of nuts. Uh, this is in Numbers chapter 22, starting in verse 28. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam, you, you, uh, Balaam doesn't like freak out and be like, Why is my donkey talking to me right now? Balaam just says, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey says to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all of your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in hand, and he bowed down on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. So whew, there you go. Yeah. In case you're wondering, Balaam, only say what God's going to tell you to say. The crazy thing to me about this story, though, is he asked, he talks to the donkey like this is normal. I know. It's, it's like So it makes me, it does make me wonder, like, with the way he, like, the, the sorcery and the, 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 evil side of the supernatural, like there's gotta be, I don't know, like it just feels like it's a normal circumstance. Like, oh, you're talking to me again. Like you suck. And it's just so interesting. Like, because I remember like, this is, this is a pretty incredible story. Like go, go to a petting zoo and look at a donkey and try to have a conversation with it. I've tried many times. It doesn't work. Anymore. I believe it. Yeah. Go, go to the kangaroo farm here in the Northwest and try to have a conversation. It doesn't work. And, and so in this moment, it's such an extreme, incredible example. Like, I think sometimes we'll read scripture, like, okay, cool. He's talking about, hey, no, no, stop for a second, please. Like, 
God used the mouth of a donkey to communicate to Balaam. Uh, it's a pretty remarkable thing. Again, so yeah, just again, reading, trying to read scripture with fresh eyes, especially if we re- read it before, I think there's just moments where it's, it's God, did this, like, this really happened? It's so remarkable. So, mm-hmm. so chapters 23 and 24 give us a, a humorous episode of Balak. He's wanting Balaam to curse Israel and Balaam <laughs> is not able Back to do and forth. Yeah, he can't do it. Uh, and so Balak tries only showing. So first time it happens, and Balaam just blesses them, and Balak's like, "Dude, come on!" And so he takes him to <laughs> what another. Did I tell you, he takes him to another spot, and he's like, "Here, here's only like it's just it's just a portion of the camp. It's not even the whole camp. Can you just curse these Israelites?" And it still doesn't happen. Um, the third for the third and fourth oracles, we're told specifically that the spirit of God empowers Balaam, which is really which again is still so crazy, to right? Me. So these are clearly. Uh, yeah, like it's God's ways are not our ways. Let's yeah, just be honest. There so. you go. Uh, the third oracle is another blessing. And then the fourth oracle is just straight up talking about the future Davidic line. So it's talking about like the, the kings that will rise. So pretty, pretty crazy there. Um, after this, our next story takes place in the region of Shittim, which is fitting considering the crappy thing the Israelites are about to do. Uh, some of the Israelite, some of the Israelite men apparently had big crushes on the Moabite women. Uh, and then through that, they develop a crush on a certain God you may have heard of, and this is Baal. Um, and if you've heard the name before, it's because this is like the one that this is the one they can't get over. This is the God that the Israelites are con- continuously... If you know the meme of Wolverine looking at the picture, it, this is what they're looking at. They're just like longing for Baal. Because, you know, what has Yahweh ever done for them? Just freed them from captivity in Egypt and delivered them from their enemies. But... And provided for them like crazy. No, but uh, yeah, no. But the, Baal. Yeah, let's just check out this Moabite God. That's cool. Come on, Israelites. Baal is easier to say than Yahweh. Uh, I guess that's, I mean, that is fair, I suppose. <laughs> uh, so some of the men of Israel began offering sacrifices to Baal. And in response, God sends a plague that kills 24,000 people. Uh, and it ends only after Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, chases down and kills one of the men. And then as a reward, Phineas's descendants are granted perpetual priesthood. So again, not all the Levites are priests. And so, but in Phineas's line, basically, yeah, y'all, y'all get it. So, but this was, did you mention, I don't remember if you, sorry, if I zoned out for a second. Um, but this was also from Balaam. This was the recommendation from well, Balaam. Well, we don't find out. We don't find that out yet though. Are you sure? Oh, maybe it's because I'm... I thought, I thought it's... I thought we'd get that later. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll hold Spoilers. on. Spoilers. Just kidding. Wait, I'll talk about or that I, in a few chapters. Or I completely missed that while I was reading. I don't... I I, and I'll be honest with you, because some of the things... And we'll get to this when I, when, in a few moments when I'm talking about chapter 31 to the end of the chap, book. Um, but some of it will be a deep reflect or a reflection back to things we just talked about. And I, I'll just say now, like, the reality of why this played out the way it did is because Balaam, who didn't curse God's people because God told him no, directed... Balak to, Hey, have your women seduce them. I, I can't curse them, but your women can seduce them. And it was out of Balaam's direction that Balak had this, this strategy, if you will, which then God's own people sinned and rebelled because they were seduced to do so. And they just made, they, they started worshiping Baal. And this is the ongoing problem with the Israelite people. They couldn't shake the worship and the temptation of worshiping this God because of these moments. So I've said, I've said it a bunch of times on this podcast, but I always want to bring it up because I remember like I had this core memory in my mind of watching something. I think it was on the history channel and it's like, you know, one of their documentaries that they do where they talk about like, Hey, do you know that I think the Bible's stupid. And like one of them was, it was a guy and he was talking about, it's like, yeah, people like, they talk about how the Jews were monotheistic. We have tons of evidence that the people of Israel worshipped a bunch of other gods. Like, I don't think... The, Good job, yes. And basically, he's using it as a, a way of saying, like, yeah, the Bible's not 
the Bible's lying about this. I'm like, what are you talking? Like, read the Bible. Of course they worship other gods. Like, they struggle with it all the time. So, I don't know. We have this, we have this weird picture of Israel where we think of the ancient kingdom of Israel as being essentially the same as the Jews in the time of Christ. It is not true. There's yeah. a whole fall of Jerusalem <laughs> and 400 years of, of, of crazy uh, that go into the cultural situation that Jesus was walking through. The people of Israel at this time are very much, they're worshiping the same God and they're following the same law, but they're, you know, they're struggling with certain parts of it a lot more. Yep. So there you go. Uh, chapter 26 gives us the second numbering of the people. Remember that numbers this is fun. Yeah, numbers is named that because there are two numberings or two censuses that take place. Um, I, I wrote the final number is actually similar. So it's been a, it's been a whole generation. Um, there's not. I think there's only like 2,000 more people in the camp, that, or yeah. it's 2,000 less. It's one of the two. I think it's less. Um, and here's the thing. Plagues will do that to you. Because <laughs> like, I, I was kind of thinking, <laughs> I was thinking through my head. I was like, how does that happen? Like, and how, rebellion. Yeah. I, I realized like, oh, wait, like there's a bunch of plagues that take place and kill people off. So, yep, that'll do it. So, the, the number of Israelites is about the same. And when you rebel against God and are wander through the wilderness to be killed off, yeah, it happened. That'll yeah. happen. So only Joshua and Caleb and then some of the Levites would be counted in both censuses. I say some of the Levites because they counted like the babies. And so yeah, uh, some of them will have been, they would was be Was it older. a month old or something like that? Yeah. So anyway, Joshua and Caleb though, as far as the, the, they're the only men who were adults at the time of the first numbering who were also counted in the second numbering. So, and Moses gonna, would be a part of that too, but. I guess that's true. Yeah. But, but yeah, th- I mean, they're really it. Mm-hmm. They're the last holdovers from that generation. Uh, this is a new generation ready to take hold of the promised land. Uh, chapter 27 gives us a really interesting aside about the daughters of uh, Zelophehad. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about this uh, really in depth last year. So if you want to know more about this, because I actually thought it was really interesting, uh, listen to our episodes on numbers last year and you'll be able to find that. Uh, but to talk about it kind of in, pass- in passing, uh, there's three women, they're sisters, and they asked to inherit their father's land. Uh, and so what would happen, you know, if it, it was only only males could inherit land. And so if there were no sons, it would go to a brother of the father. And if there was no fathers it would, or if there's no brothers, it would go to the closest male relative. Um, they're asking that they can inherit. So that way the name of their father doesn't die out, which is a super important thing. And we'll even get to when we get into the books of judges and the historical books. You'll see that the land that's apportioned to the tribes is incredibly important, and it never leaves the tribes. And I, I, I mean, maybe like some sin happens, and it does. But the the plan is that whatever the land is that the tribe holds, that land cannot move to other tribes. Yeah. And so, and you even see in the years of jubilee, the land is supposed to go back to the rightful owners. Yeah. Of so the if land. it does exchange hands, the ju- your jubilee is what brings it back to the tribe. Because right. Historically, it's never to leave the tribe. Yeah. So that's kind of what they're talking about here. So there's a uh, there's a special there's special rules created where essentially yep. if there are no sons, the daughters can inherit uh, in that situation. So there you go. Which in and of itself is a is a remarkable forward thinking reality in the culture of the time because women were not always provided for in that capacity, but they were given allowance. Here. Yeah, we read it with our modern Western eyes, and we're like, yeah, of course that, that makes total the rules. sense. But like to an ancient person, this is like, wait oh, a minute, that's pretty revolutionary. So there you go. Uh, in the back half of the chapter, Moses gets a similar command to Aaron. So once again, God, remember God commands Aaron, you know, your time has come, go up to the top of this mountain, declare Eleazar your successor, and then you're going to die. Uh, so Moses has to declare, or God chooses Joshua yeah. 
to be his successor. Uh, and so like Eleazar was chosen to succeed Aaron, uh, Joshua is chosen to succeed Moses. Uh, Moses and Eleazar, who is the high priest, uh, lay their hands on Joshua to declare him the next leader of Israel. Moses, however, does not go up the mountain at this point. So, and that's not like rebellion. He has some yeah. he has some stuff to do, namely Deuteronomy. <laughs> and then yeah, he's after, not done leading. Yeah. yeah, and then after that, he's going to go up to the mountain and and die. So it's the one go. difference between Aaron and Moses is Aaron goes up to the mountain, hands off the baton, and passes away. Moses anoints and prays with Eleazar. The commissioning of Joshua mm-hmm. that doesn't the handoff doesn't fully happen till later. And yeah, if I had to kind of but these events are close together when the end of Deuteronomy is written, just so just so we're aware of. So yeah, if I had to kind of like and this is obviously kind of it's it's not a perfect analogy, but I, I would kind of equate it to in church world when one pastor is leaving and the next pastor is coming up. Deuteronomy is kind of. After, you know, like usually what you'll do is you'll lay hands, you'll pray on the, you'll pray for the new pastor and then the old pastor can kind of say something and say goodbye to the church. That's kind of what Deuteronomy yeah. is. It's where Joshua is now going to be in charge, but it's kind of Moses's last words to the people of Israel yep. before they go and, you know, just go ham on yep. the Canaanites. So there you go. Yep. Uh, chapters 28 through 30, give us some more law. Uh, chapter 28 is concerned with when offerings will take place. There's a whole calendar about weekly offerings. Basically the gist of that is there's almost always something going on at the tabernacle. Uh, and then there's even more going on during the holy days. So these are the festivals that we, that we hear about. And then chapter 30 gives us some more rules on vows, which is interesting, uh, for men, it's essentially, hey, if you vow to do something, you better do it. <laughs> yep. uh, and then for women, it's the same thing, but there are a few exceptions carved out, um, namely for like well, the big one. It would be if um, if your father objects to the vow and you don't fulfill it, you are not held accountable for not fulfilling the vow. Yeah, which is pretty. Cur- when I remember reading, I was like, oh man, I, didn't, I forgot all about that. That's yeah, crazy too. It's, it's interesting. All right. Well, that wraps it up for this section of numbers. We are going to go back to it, but before we jump back into it, uh, I do want to take take a moment to remind you, hey, you know, if you haven't left us a five-star review yet, go ahead and do that. Uh, it helps get the podcast out there to more people. And me and Aaron read every review. We appreciate it. And if you write a written review, I think you can only do that on Apple Podcasts right now. Unfortunately. Yeah, I know. But if you write a review, we will read it on the air just because, you know, that's the kind of guys we are. <laughs> we we appreciate you listeners. Yeah. So Aaron, take us through the rest of yeah. So we're wrapping up the book at this point. Uh, and so uh, the beauty is like the way that it broke down even section wise is chapter 31 to 36 is the final cycle, uh, obviously, because it's ending the book. But um, the way that numbers is broken down is there's multiple cycles that encapsulate uh, kind of a rhythmic reality of what's going on with God's people. Um, and I do want to say this. Remember, Leviticus and numbers, they start about a year after, I think it was a year or a month. can't remember now because it's all blurred together after the Exodus happened, and then it numbers specifically focuses on the next 40 years. So Leviticus covers the first year after Exodus is, is gone, and then numbers covers 40 years. So we're wrapping up 40 years here. So when we jump into Deuteronomy, it is that last, that last moment where Moses is exhorting and challenging and commanding God's people, what's next? And they're gonna, and he's handing off the baton, but it's his final thing. It's like his his, um, his final speech. And so um, as we're wrapping up the book of Numbers, we're coming to the end of this 40-year journey. Um, and and the one thing I'll tell you too, even as we'll, we'll get to, there's a chapter specifically towards the end that if you have an, the ability to have a uh, an Old Testament map, uh, do that. Because when, oh, yeah. when God sets borders and boundaries, I, I'm not going to cover any of that today. I'm just going to highlight it quickly because it, it's it's more of a visual help to see it versus just reading it flatly. So 
I would encourage you to do that. Um, as I said, chapter 30 to 30, 31 to 36 um, covers the final cycle, and it, it completes the challenge uh, to the Israelites to be faithful uh, as God was preparing them to enter the promised land. Uh, so we see in, in chapter 31, it details uh, the war with Midian, uh, which I think is interesting too. And, and I tried to do a little bit of, of of review to remember what was all going on here because God in essence tells Moses and the Israelites to destroy Midian uh, and the Midianites. Um, if you remember, Midian was the son of Abraham with Abraham's concubine Zatura after Sarah had passed away. I believe it was Sarah passed away. Um, and so the reality is like this is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I forgot to look this up. Jethro is a Midianite priest. Right. Moses' father-in-law. So when I'm reading the story, my mind is going to like, this is like Moses' extended family almost. Like this group of people he has a relationship with. Um, but the reality is God tells Moses to kill these people because this this battle was on the heels of the seduction that happened with Balaam and Balak. And so God told Moses to kill off the men uh, and then also wanted the women to die too. So long story short, a thousand, a thousand warriors from each tribe go over, or go to Midian, destroy the, all the men, kill all the men, and they keep, they keep the women and the children a, as captives. Well, and I, I, it should point, be pointed out as well that the the Midianites are a larger people group than the correct. specific tribe of Jethro. That's and correct. So yes. it would, it would all, yeah, I, I'm trying to think of like a way to say it, but I guess it would almost be like a, if you said like Europeans, maybe that's, and that's not a great analogy, but the idea is like, not all Midianites are the clan of Jethro. Jethro is not the leader over all. Yeah, of that's the good clarity. So they're, they're, here, this is not Moses going to war with Jethro. I no, guess, not at all. Exactly. Say, yeah. But it's interesting because there are, there are overlaps here. And, you know, Abraham sleeping with Zatura, who was a concubine and having a son named Midian is where the Midianite was, Midianites were, 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 came from. So they have ties back to Abraham and his family. Um, just like Edom, which is Jacob and Esau. Like there are these overlaps, which again, God populated the earth from two people. And so we're going to see these things, but it's such an interesting, interesting dynamic playing out. Um, so the battle was off, it came on the heels of the seduction from Balaam and Balak, where Balaam would incur, as we've already discussed. Um, and he told, like I said already, that he told um, Balak, hey, why don't you have your women seduce? Women seduced the men. Uh, and which then brought a curse because they started worshiping Baal, thousands of dives, which we already talked about. Um, and the problem is that they didn't fulfill the job. These Israelites didn't fulfill the job of killing all the Midians because they left the women alive. So Moses had every woman who slept with a man killed off. Uh, and we see this in Numbers 31, verse 12 to 16. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, it says, they brought pr the prisoners, animals, and spoils of war to Moses. The priest Eleazar was the one who led. And another significant thing about this battle is it, it showed the uh, authority of the priest, uh, of the priesthood of the Levites to lead the way with battle. And what I mean by that is Eleazar carried some of the sacred elements and led God's people, the 12,000 uh, warriors, to go destroy Midian. Uh, he led them with the sacred elements, the, the things that represented God's presence and their establishment as God's people. Um so the priest Eleazar comes back to the Israelite community with all the, the with all the prisoners, uh, and it says in tw verse twelve, um, it brought the prisoners, animals, and spoils of war to Moses, the priest Eleazar, and the Israelite community at the camp of the plains of Moab, by the Jordan across from Jericho. 
Moses, the priest Eleazar, and all the leaders of the community went to meet them outside the camp. Sorry, it wasn't Eleazar that went with them. I think it was Phineas actually. Ooh. Um, but Eleazar is the high priest. And so they all come out, Moses and Eleazar, the leaders of the community. And, but Moses became furious with the officers, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who were returning from the military campaign. Have you let every female live? He asked them. Yet they're the ones who, at Balaam's advice, incited the Israelites to unfaithfulness against the Lord in, P- in the Peor incident so that the plague came against the Lord's community. So he had all the women who had yet to sleep with the men killed off. And all the women who had not slept with the men yet were, were in essence kept as cap- in captivity. They were either sold as slaves or they were used as slaves themselves. Um, and you're going to see throughout the Old Testament, Midian is, this is an ongoing fight against Midianites that the Israelites almost, they couldn't shake worshiping Baal. Uh, they often are fighting against the Midianites because they didn't do their due diligence to kill off all the women that, as, as Moses directed them in this situation specifically. Um, we especially see the Midianites in the story of Gideon as we get to the book of Judges in a, in a, a couple months, I think. Um, but that's the story of the Midianites, and, and it's an interesting fight for sure. Um, and it all stems from the seduction of the Midianite women, of the Israelite men, which led them to worship Baal, opened up that door to where it became an ongoing fight for them moving forward. Um, chapter 32 shares about Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh wanting to settle on the east side of the Jordan. And this is a pretty significant thing, too, as we already talked about when they removed the kings of Sion. Uh, this is where Reuben and Gad, and then uh, further up, you see half the tribe of Manasseh wants to settle east of the Jordan. <clears throat> and you find that Moses is angry at first, which is really interesting. His response to Moses or to the to Ru- the Reubenites and the Gadites was anger. And he called them, he in essence warned them of rebellion. Um, and, and it seems to appear uh, that the intention or the motivation for these clans, for these tribes to not want to cross the Jordan because they don't want to go to war. And they want to stay. And so they want to settle for land that they saw. Oh, this is good enough for our livestock. So they went to, hey, they went to Moses and say, hey, we want to settle over here. Is that okay? Um, so it triggers Moses' recalling of their father's rebellion in the wilderness. He is really protective of his community, which is really good because of the duration of the wilderness journey they just walked on because of the rebellion of their father's generation. Um, and so since he found that they didn't, like the real reason they didn't want to go across the Jordan is because they didn't want to go to war, he called them out for it. And so the Reubenites and the Gadites said, hey, listen, listen, we will fully support the war. All of our able-bodied men will go over. We just want to keep our families in, are safe on this side in towns. Uh, and so that that they had their land, but they had to wait to fully possess it. They left there. They kind of set up some some spaces for their families to stay safe within towns that were already there. After they routed the kings, and I think it was the five kings of Sion or whatever, they just they routed. Um, but they must wait to really fully possess it until after uh, the land was con- conquered and the the inheritance was divvied up. Uh, so that was an it's an interesting chapter to see this not rebellion, but borderline rebellion because right. they didn't want to go to war. Well, I think there's also, I can't, I can't remember. I think it's in Joshua where there's the controversy about the altar that's built, but I think that's another really interesting. We'll talk about that when we get to it. Yeah. But, that's on the other side of the Jordan, isn't it? Though? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's a few, there's a few really interesting things about the relationship between Reuben, Gad and the half tribe of mm-hmm. Manasseh very compared true. with the rest of Israel. And we'll, we'll come back to this. What is what I'm saying yeah. to listeners at some point? Yeah, so then we get to chapter 33. And you can tell at this point, like the book is winding down. Like the the 
everything is kind of coming to an end. It's the end of a cycle, but it's also the end of a of, a, of an era because they're they're coming out of the wilderness. They're settling and getting prepared to step into the promised land. Um, so chapter thirty three. This is the one that I'll be honest with you would be really helpful to have a map in front of you. Um, it's an outline of what I call of like the pit stops. It's a quick review of the places they went leading up to this point. Chapter thirty four then covers the boundaries for the land. Again, really good to have a map in front of you if you have one. If you're just listening to the Bible because you're on the go, that I, I, I get it. It's gonna make it, it's gonna make it harder to understand what's really going on here. Um, but you'll see that the, there's boundaries placed for the north, the south, the borders of God's promised land, and there's also direction as far as who is gonna provide and give the inheritance to God's people. Uh, and what I mean by that is. The, the allotment for territory size, regional size, is dependent on the size of the tribe. Uh, so larger tribes will get a larger cut of the land, so to speak. That's promised. Smaller tribes will get a smaller cut because they don't need as much land. Um, and so then God says, here's the leaders who are going to do it. Caleb is the only leader left of a tribe that would have been from the previous generation because Joshua is now being elevated into the overall leader role. Uh, and so he doesn't have tribe leadership anymore. So you see God identifies and elevates um, the, the right people to be the ones who are divide the inheritance uh, out when it's time. Chapter 35 discusses the cities for the Levites as well as the cities of refuge. Uh, I think there was a total of 48 cities all throughout the territory uh, that God is giving to the cities of Levites. And this is in essence territory given among every region. And I believe uh Again, it comes down to how many cities for Levites in each tribe region hinges on how big the tribe is. Smaller tribes would only have maybe one city uh, for the Levites, uh, but they have, a, what, a thousand by a thousand square yards, I think, of territory for them, their livestock, their cities. Um, and it's just where the Levites get to live and get to, to go home and rest after working the temple and the ships and things like that. Uh, included in this is also the cities of refuge. Um, and this was an allowance God made to have safe places with throughout the, the, the promised land for, in essence, manslaughter. Someone who accidentally killed someone or killed something uh, when they, they, they want to flee for their lives because it wasn't intentional, that they have these cities of refuge where they can go to and spend time at to allow uh, for tempers to cool, calm down, for, right, for it, it to be made right. Um, so that way they're not immediately returned uh, death for death. And then chapter 35 also dialogues about what is allowed for cities of refuge, but also what's not. In essence, if it was intentional killing something or you threw something out of anger or intended to kill someone or you killed something or some an animal or person intentionally, then there was no refuge for you. The, the owner or the family member had the right to seek your death in, in, in payment for the death of their property or the death of their family member. If it was accidental, they had the right, the individual who caused the death had the right to go to cities of refuge. That's kind of what it parallels in chapter 35 there. Um, and then finally, chapter 36, this is the fulfillment of the inheritance of, Z of Z uh, whatever the guy's name is. Zelophehad? Zel 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 I have no Zel idea. Uh, I, it's funny, I had it last night Zel as I was saying it. Uh, but the inheritance of his daughters uh, when they first came and said, hey, uh, we don't have a father, we don't have brothers, or we don't have husbands. Uh, we still want our father's inheritance. This is just the fulfillment of that allowance. It's Moses, in essence, putting his sign of approval that this is right. You need to make sure it happens. Um, and as long as they stay in their clan, the, the territory will stay with them. 
the, the daughters end up marrying uh, tr- uh, cousins from the tribe of Manasseh. So the t- inheritance actually stays within the family clan as it should have stayed anyways. Uh, so chapter 36, the end of numbers wraps up with the fulfillment and the promise that this is right and it should happen. Uh, and that's where numbers ends. Boom. Next week, we're going to pick up in Deuteronomy. But before that, I don't know why I said before next week. Obviously, this is before next week. We're going to talk about what we learned today. Okay, so my main thing is uh, that that just kind of stood out to me is sometimes it's the seemingly innocuous that can be the most dangerous to us. Because again, you read the story of Moses and Aaron and they're just like, yeah, I'll strike the rock and like whatever. Like you're kind of being flippant with it. It also brings back Nadab and Abihu um, that we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, but it's taking the taking the commands of God seriously. And I think sometimes we can have a tendency in our lives to just kind of think like, well, this one's not a big deal or what or whatever it is. Um, and so I think for me, it's a good heart check of where in my life am I not taking some of the commands of God seriously? Where in my life am I being That's good? Yeah, am I, yeah, am I being flippant? Um, am I not really caring? And it's it's a it's an important thing to take stock of because again, like when you're reading through that, if there was if there wasn't the passage at the end where it says, and this is what made it so Moses and Aaron couldn't enter the promised land, most of us would probably never even realize that something wrong was done. Um, I think you're right. But but it clearly, like God, God is so angry with it. And so I think it's a reminder for us today um, to never take never take the commands of God lightly. Yeah, that's good. Um, my, mine almost feels like a little bit of a heavier one. Um, just because I'm, I'm reflecting on, on the wrap up, I'm reflecting on kind of how uh, the Israelites' existence, and, and we can learn a whole lot. And this is kind of an obvious one, but I think it's one that's very important to remember that the consequences of sin don't disappear because time move on, moves on, or things change. Um, the impact of sin still carries weight, and it doesn't, and it will still hit us, whether now or later. Um, and you see that with the Israelites, and you see that with the Midianites, and that, and, and it's, and I'm, part of me is thinking forward, right to different circumstances or different stories we're going to be reading throughout the Old Testament about the ongoing fight with the Midianites. Um, but because God's people, because Phineas and the, the 12,000 warriors of Israel didn't kill off everybody Moses said to, everybody that God intended to be killed off, that plagues them for for generations. And and it's really important to, to understand like sin is sin and it, it carries weight. And thanks be to God that there's grace. Thanks be to God that Jesus has paid the way, but it doesn't minimize the impact and the consequences of sin that they will, it will carry a weight and it will carry an impact. Now, because of Christ, it doesn't carry the eternal death that it once carried. Uh, but but there are consequences to choices. And, I, and I'm trying to teach my daughter this, my son this, like your, your choices matter. The consequences from those choices will play out too. Um, but I think it's important just to be reminded that the consequences of sin don't disappear because time has moved on or things change. Um, if there's sin that has happened and it hasn't been fully repentant and it hasn't been made right, that sin still carries consequences and we have to be ready for that too. Yep, that's a great reminder. Well, our last segment for today is answering a couple questions that came in. All right. So there's two questions this week. They came in the same, they came in the same message. Um, one of them was like, oh, that's interesting. And then one of them was like, how on earth have I never thought of this before? And I think that comes up 
that's come up a few times. Like mm-hmm. there's just questions that like, especially all, lately. Yeah. Once you hear them, you're like, Oh, that's so obvious. So I'm going to read this first one because I, I have a confession when I read it. Ooh. Okay. Uh, but the first one says this in numbers, the age for priestly activities seem to be limited to 30 to 50. Does that mean that Aaron should have retired as he was too old? When I first read the question in passing, I thought you were talking about me specifically. Oh. And I was like, I'm not 50 yet. And then I realized it wasn't about me. You're not so. even 40 yet. No, so. I'm not, not 40 yet either. But so I just, it was kind of funny. But so that was, that's the first question. There's a joke that we have where uh, at one of our last conferences that we went to as a bunch of pastors, there was a moment where they're talking about the next generation and the cutoff year was 40. And so me and Aaron, we just, made the cut. We just made eye contact with each other and laughed as we looked at all the other old fogey pastors. On yeah, the our staff. lead pastor and, and then our executive <laughs> pastor, they both are over 40 now. So basically past their prime, just what are you going to do? Yeah. They might as well retire. Okay. So we'll, we'll answer this question first. So essentially this, the age of retirement is set to 30 to 50. Does that mean Aaron should retire as he was too old? Um, there's two ways that we can read this passage. So I'm going to, Pull it up here. So it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This applies to the Levites from 25 years old and upward. They shall come to do duty in the service of the duty. They shall come to do duty in the set service of the tent of meeting. And from the age of 50, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and serve no more. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. Thus you shall do to the Levites in assigning their duties. Uh, a whole lot of duty duties. <laughs> all right. Evan's so, going to be a dad soon. He, his wife is pregnant. It's so true. he's going to have all these little giggling dad jokes that are going to work <laughs> now. Duty. Um, okay. So there's two ways that we can talk about this. Number one, it's that Aaron was given special exemption from this by God. So Aaron was not too, basically Aaron was allowed to be there as long as God has him in place. Um, the other thing, and I, I think this is where I land on it, is that this is specifically talking about the Levites and not the priests, which is kind of a confusing distinction to make because all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Um, Whoa. Uh, But remember that the non-priest Levites, what is their job? It's tearing down the tabernacle is is the main thing they do as they move it. And so that involves very heavy lifting and involves manual labor. And so it seems like what's happening here is that when you reach a certain age, you are no longer obligated to help out with the bronze, the giant bronze pillars yeah. and load them into carts. The heavy, the heavy lifting. Uh, but you can still guard. And and, and the, that's kind of the sentence that tips it off for me, where it says they can minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard. Um, that is the duty of a lot of the Levites as well. Yes. But it, that's also very open-handed. And I could very easily be convinced that Aaron was just given special exemption from this by God, given who, who he was. So Yeah. You almost got to remember too, Aaron was set apart as the first priest. Right. And so there's something about setting an order and about setting us and God establishing a people for himself throughout the wilderness. So there is something about Aaron's position was unique and brand new and God was using it purposely. So, but yeah, it's, it's still a good question. I think it's a great question. Um, and I'm thankful you weren't actually asking about me retiring. So thank you for that. Way to go. Even though my voice last week probably would have com- compu- com- uh, communicated, I should have taken a break. So this next question, it came in. And I was like, never in my 30 years of life Ooh, 30. Have, I po- have I pondered this, but it's such an obvious question. So it says, when the Israelites were grumping about the lack of variety in their diet, why didn't any enterprising soul not kill and eat one of the substantial flocks of goats, sheep, or cows that they had with them? I've never understood this. So yeah, the people of Israel, they're like, hey, we want meat. 
Why can't we have any meat? And I always viewed that as like, oh yeah, all they have to eat is manna. They don't have anything else. And you realize they have like a bunch of flocks mm-hmm. that are happening right there. So um, I did I did a good chunk of research on this because I was really curious about what's going on. Uh, so here's a couple different ideas, and I, I'm not sure which one I they land on yet. Or honestly, it's probably a combination of all of these. So uh, number one, did the Israelites view some of these animals as holy and not want to eat them? And the reason you would say that is basically for generations mm-hmm. they've been in Egypt, um, they're used they're used to the the culture and the the customs of that people. And so, is it a coincidence that when they want to make a new god, they make it a calf? You know what I mean? So, are are is there some level of where they're hesitant there? I don't think that's what is going on, but that's a possibility. Um, this is a this this one's a great point. Uh, if they were sheep herders and wool was one of their big sources of income, they wouldn't have wanted to kill their sheep to eat them. They mm-hmm. would have wanted to keep the sheep for the. And wool. let's be honest, lamb is not a very good tasty meat, anyways. I you know I have I've had good lamb. I don't have lamb. You don't have very often, and I don't go to the I don't go to like the Euro place that we have next to us. So I don't know. But the the times I've had lamb, it's been very good. Um, Next one, perhaps they were saving their herds for the promised land. So perhaps the, the idea there was they're not going to um, worry about trying to slaughter through the herds. Um, the wording of the, or I guess I should, this this one, I'll go this one first because this one kind of falls along with that. Um, not every Israelite had substantial herds and flocks. Yeah, so remember true. in the law, there's, there's allotments made on sacrifices specifically for the poor. Um, so just because there's a there's a decent chunk of herds, that doesn't mean that every Israelite has a bunch of um, has a bunch of cattle that they can just go out and slaughter. Um, there still were the poor, and it's very possible that there wasn't there weren't enough animals in the camp to be sustainable. So in other words, to keep breeding and to keep the population of the animals up, and also satisfy the hunger of the Israelites. And the final one, I thought this was interesting. This was on a. Uh, um, a Jewish website that I found that a rabbi wrote an article about this, but the the Hebrew here uh, it could imply that they wanted specifically fresh meat, and so with large meat, so let's say you slaughter a cow for your family, um, you would eat fresh for a little bit, but then the rest of it would have to be salted, and mm-hmm. then you would eat it cold. And so it could be that they were crying out for small, basically smaller animals, which is exactly what a quail is. Yeah. Um, that they could eat the whole thing fresh, and they don't have to keep eating what is essentially what is essentially jerky. So, uh, I don't know. Like, it's one of those things where, like, I, I, again, I'm a little bit ashamed. I've never thought of it before, so I don't have a clear, yeah. <laughs> a clear answer in mind. Uh, but if I had to guess, I would say it's kind of a combination of a few of these. Where the sheep thing makes sense to me. If your wool is a source of income, um, not everyone has substantial flocks, so it could have been a complaint of a, a lot of the poor who were crying out for the meat. Um, and then also, like the fresh meat thing makes sense to me as well. And if that's kind of what the original language is implying, then that makes sense. So. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I mean, for face value, I think of two things. One, I think um, part of the reason why they left with the flocks they did, Moses was telling Pharaoh, "Let us go into the wilderness so we can worship our God. We worship God, the God, God, the God. We worship God through." Stop. God's people would worship God through sacrifice. Uh, so part of it could have been that they saw their livestock or their animals that they were more specific to sacrifice. That that's how they were going to worship God. That's how they were going to make atonement. Um, and so there, it could have been one of those things where they maybe it was off limits because they were for sacrifice, not for substance. The other side too that I would say is also consider they're wandering the wilderness. What happens to animals when they wander a wilderness? There's not a lot of vegetation. There's not like, they're not the most meaty driven animals then. Could be. They could have been withered or they could have been worn and not as well appetizing 
because of the size of them. So I think those are a couple other things to throw in the mix as well. Um, but I don't think there's ever going to be a clear, clear answer. But it is, it is an interesting thing, and it makes for a little bit more drama if they're complaining about not getting meat that they want. So there you go. But good questions. Oh good yeah, questions. I loved it. I was again. I love getting the questions where you read it and you're like, I've never thought about this before. So good deal. Well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media page. And if the Grove Church has been, or if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a gift button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.